Hi there, I'm Jake Humphrey and this is High Performance, the podcast that reminds you that it's within your story, your ambition, your purpose. It's all there. We just help to unlock it by turning the lived experiences of the planet's highest performers into your life lessons. So right now, enjoy our conversation with one of the most remarkable athletes on the planet. It felt like forever and I just remember darkness and... I mean, I knew how bad it was, the risk of bleeding out and, you know, we're in the middle of nowhere and, and I needed a blood transfusion. And just that realization, actually, this could be it. And then it was my mom came in and, and she was the one that had to say, you know, I'm so sorry. They did everything they could, but they were unable to save all of your leg and they had to amputate. Life is never going to look the same again. And actually, I'm not sure right now I want that life or I want to know what it looks like. The world is not going to change for you. Often you don't have that option, so you have to change for it. And, you know, you can sit back and think, oh, things are really unfair and really hard. But ultimately, the only thing I can change is me, my actions, what I do, my attitude. If I've given an opportunity or someone asks me to do something, and the first thing that I feel is fear and self-doubt, for me, that is a trigger. That is something you must do. (laughs) Or that is something you at least need to explore because... I know that it's something that's going to stretch me, it's going to make me uncomfortable, and and that is a good thing. That's the kind of conversation you can expect from the chat we had with Steph Reed here on High Performance. So Steph is an incredible Paralympic athlete, but the fact that she competes at the highest level is only a very small part of her story. You're going to hear... Um, what I must be honest is a very emotional and incredibly moving story from someone who talks about the trauma of an accident that completely changed her life, the way that her parents dealt with it and the things that they did to make her realise that her life wasn't over. Nurse Claudette we speak about um, and we move to tears talking about what she did for Steph, the way that her classmates reacted when she walked back into the classroom with a prosthetic leg all the way through to the power of life being a team sport, how she chooses her coaches, why she's constantly learning, why you have to become comfortable and almost excited about self-doubt and the fact that the best coaches on the planet are selfless coaches. You're about to walk into the mind of someone who has lived a traumatic yet incredibly rewarding life and you're going to have a seemingly honest account of what life is like inside her elite sporting environment. So please join me in welcoming Steph Reed to the High Performance Podcast. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves, without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Well, Steph, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, It's my pleasure. I'm really excited for this. What represents high performance to you? For me, high performance is doing your craft in such a way that it captures the imagination and the interest of people around you because it is so fun and it is clever and it is disciplined and it is excellent and it is 
joyful. And there's total commitment. Uh, and that is everything, body, mind, soul, time, and money. Now, I think some people will hear that and say, well, surely you can only be a, like that with one thing in your life. You can only excel at one thing. I look at your CV. You're a world record-breaking long jumper, qualified biochemist, actor, broadcaster, model, celebrity MasterChef finalist, semi-finalist in Dancing on Ice, vice president of UK Athletics, which is almost unheard of for an athlete. Um, you've found time to be awarded an MBE. You do TED Talks. You've met the Pope. So do you apply that mindset that you mentioned at the top to all of those different areas? And if you do, how on earth do you manage it? Because many people would love an answer. <laughs> That's a great point. And yes, I do. And, and as you read it off, it's important to note that there were blocks of time dedicated to, to each of those things, because it's not like I'm doing all of those things all the time. And, and equally, I think what I've learned as my career has gone on, sometimes you'll be asked to do something. And initially, you want to say no, because you're just like, I have absolutely no business being there. But then you think about it, I think actually, I have a skill set that can transfer in this way. And even though it's a bit unusual, actually, that could be a huge benefit to me. Anytime I agree to do something, I am in 100%. And if I don't feel like I can do that, then then I'll have to say no and and move on. But I think that has been one of the keys, just saying yes and just trying and not being phased the first time you get something wrong or you fail. How? You have to find a way to be really okay with looking foolish. And you kind of just have to leave your pride at the door. Be okay with being the person that asks the stupid questions and not caring in that moment how silly you look, but seeing in the future, you know, two days from now, I'm going to look really smart when I get this right. Honestly, I, I experience this all the time. Um, my first foray into the world of being a board member and an administration and sports. And I was so thankful for this moment. I had never been in the corporate world. Um, I didn't quite know how these email chains work or who's appropriate to speak to. And I had quite a strong opinion um, about something that someone did. And I thought it was going to be very helpful to share it with her. And I shared it. And I got a very strong email from her boss, basically telling me that you do not speak to my um, the people that work for me that way, you come to me and I will relay the message. And that was really, I mean, I, f I was so embarrassed. My my face just flared up red. And I went to my husband like, Brent, I'm going to have to quit. Like I completely messed up. I got this completely wrong. And it was just like, oh, what do you do? And then we ended up having a face-to-face -face meeting um, a week later. And, and do you know what I learned? I learned the lesson and it was done. He wasn't angry at me and I apologized and we moved on. And it was okay. And I thought, do you know what? That was a great lesson to learn. I had no other way of, of learning it. Why was I going to beat myself up about it? But now that I have learned it, commit to that. And that is how you treat people going forward. So it was a great lesson in management. And, and I was really thankful for it. So I see one of your superpowers, Steph, as being your adaptability. But I'm interested in where that came from, your origins of, I know we were speaking off the mic before around your parents sort of taught you to adapt and to be able to deal with whatever life throws at you from a young age. Would you just tell us a little bit about your story? Sure. As you can probably tell from my accents, uh, it's a little bit unusual. And I guess even as you say that, it, it really did just kind of start with the example of my parents. Their dream was to travel the world. And they, they did it, and they took us kids with them. And so I was actually born in New Zealand. My dad is Scottish, my mom's English. And uh, we traveled around a little bit after that. We lived in Hawaii for a year, and then my dad got a job in Toronto. So I grew up primarily in Toronto, uh, went to school in Canada, then met my husband, who was from Quebec, the French part of Canada, but he actually got a sports scholarship to America in Texas. And so I spent four years in Dallas, all before coming back to the UK. So all that to say, my life has I've kind of felt like a chameleon my whole life, just because sometimes I meet friends who have, they've lived in the same village, the same community their whole life. And you look at what they have and it's amazing. You see those roots and you see those relationships and that real sense of um, this is where I belong. Whereas for me, I've never had it in that traditional sense. It's always been wherever I am, I'm here to learn. I'm here to take the best of what I can, share what I can. And, and that's kind of become home. So I think maybe that's where the adaptability came from, you know, starting school, different places so many times, constantly having to make friends. Uh, I guess you just kind of get used to it. So when you look at that in contrast with these friends that do have maybe a more stable or a deeper rooted upbringing, what benefits do you feel that your experience that your parents gave you has served you well throughout the rest of your life? I do sometimes look with envy at people who have those, those deep roots because I think there's benefits to, to both, but you know, I, I 
I, I, I love the life that I've had. I've loved what they've taught me. I guess it comes down to that idea that you, you chase what you want. Things are never going to surface in your lap and the world is not going to change for you. Often you don't have that option. So you have to change for it. And, you know, you can sit back and think, oh, things are really unfair and really hard. But ultimately the only thing I can change is me, my actions, what I do, my attitude. And so I think that's what it's changed me. You go into these new situations, people are not going to accommodate you. You need to find a way to take all of yourself and fit into that situation. And I am, I mean, and, and watching them, they, for most of my life, were, were business owners and entrepreneurs. And you get a brilliant lesson in what it looks like to experience wild success and wild failure. You know, they made a lot of money. They lost a lot of money. And they always managed to come back with optimism. And I guess that was the example that, that was set for me. There's always room for a comeback. Love it. It reminds me of a phrase we had as a kid growing up in my family, which was roots and wings. My parents would say to us, we've got to give you roots and wings. You know, the roots where you know this is home and the wings to fly the world and do loads of exciting stuff. And we've sort of adapted it a bit with our children where we say to them, we'll always leave a light on. There's always a place here you can come back to. Whatever goes on in your life, you can come back here. The light is on, non-judgmental. And I think people often look at someone like you with all the traveling that you did and think, well, how could you feel like there was a light on? How did you feel the roots when you were moving around? But like home is not a place, right? Home is a feeling. And it's like your parents gave you the feeling of home, no matter where you were, no matter what you were doing. And I think that if we learn one thing from what you've said so far, it is the importance of giving people the, the strength and that kind of like stability of there is, there is a home for you all the time, which then I think allows you to do the brave things that you've spent your whole life doing. Yeah, my parents were so, I, I knew, even throughout my whole career, no matter what I was achieving, I knew deep down the only thing my mom cared about was whether or not I was enjoying myself to the point where and we had a conversation before 2012 and I wasn't, I wasn't doing very well. And it's hard, it's your home, it's your home Paralympics and you want to do well. And I was in a four month slump and the Paralympics were coming up and I'd had a, I'd had a competition and I called my mom and she, and she's like, how are you? I just burst into tears. And it was just one of those moments where I just did not know I was doing everything I could. It wasn't working out. What is the way forward? What she said to me was, well, why don't you just quit? And I was like, well, what do you mean? Just quit. She said, well, why don't you just quit? You know, we're already proud of you. And this clearly isn't making you happy. Why don't we just book a trip to the Caribbean during the Paralympics? You know, you don't have to do this. And I don't think she was actually encouraging me to quit. The point was, Stephanie, you are not a victim in this. You know, you have chosen this. You can also unchoose it. But what do you want? And I realized in that moment, I want to try. And I was very aware of the situation. I was very aware it was not going well. I was very aware the head coach was showing up at every single practice I had because he had his doubts and he wanted to know what is going on here. And I thought, do you know what? In spite of all that, I don't want to walk away from this not knowing if I could have turned it around. If I can't, great. At least I know. But I want to try. And you're right. I have that freedom because I know ultimately I have a family I can go back to that doesn't care about that stuff. I love that because it's so, it's so powerful, but it, it resonates with so many of our other guests as well, Steph, around this idea of you're not a victim, that you say that, that, that you can impose your will on this. And that leads me to want to explore you at 16 years of age when your life does change. I'll ask you about the incident around it, but from what I understand, that would have been very easy to, uh, to assume a victim mindset based on what happened to you. Yeah. Would you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it was, you know, you, you kind of have those moments in life that are the turning points and that, you know, it was almost like, you know, you talk about AD and BC. <laughs> that was like the Steph with two legs versus Steph um, with, with one and a half. I, I mean, I, I grew up absolutely loving sports. Um, I did everything I could um, from, you know, basketball, volleyball, tennis, swimming. And then when I was 13, I was introduced to rugby, fell in love. I was going to be an international rugby superstar. That's what I wanted to do. And um, things were looking really good, actually. Um, I, was, I was quite small, um, but I, I played scrum half. And, um, but I caught the eye of some of the national coaches. And there are a few discussions. I was still too small to train with them, you know, with, with the national team. But I thought, this actually has a chance at coming true. And then uh, just before 
my 16th birthday, everything changed in a way that it's not even something that ever crossed my mind. I was up at a friend's cottage for it was a bank holiday weekend, and you know, we were having a great time. They had a beautiful cottage on a lake. They had a, a motorboat, and and one of the things that we had done is we went tubing, and that's where you have um, a rubber inner tube that you attach to the back of a boat. I mean, I kind of call it like lazy water skiing, but you know, you're reclining, and, and the whole point is that you know. The driver's going fast enough. He's taking turns. You're trying to hang on for dear life. He's trying to flip you off. And, and you often get flipped off and you wait in the water and then they come back, you climb back on the tube and you do it all again. And for whatever reason, this one time um, I had fallen off the tube and there was a miscommunication between the spotter and the driver. You know, it's a big boat. Um, and, and so you have to have both. And for whatever reason, the driver had no idea that I was in the water waiting to get picked back up. So I, I saw the boat coming and, and initially I didn't think much of it. And then I just realized this is coming way too fast and, you know, he doesn't see me. And that is when your body just switches into survival mode. And all I'm thinking is, Stephanie, you have got to miss those propellers. And, you know, I was a decent swimmer and I thought, actually, I don't have enough time to swim to either side, I will still get caught in the toe and pulled in. And I thought my best bet right now is to surface dive below the water. I'll get as you know as far below as I can. The boat will pass over top. I'll hold my breath. It's going to be fine. Um, which was you know it was a good plan. I just forgot that I had a life jacket on, and you know you have all the zips and the clips, and I just I couldn't get under. And that was the moment I just thought that's it. Like there's actually nothing I can do right now, except for hope for the best. It felt like forever. Under, and I just remember darkness and at some point just feeling um, really out of breath and just desperately trying to figure out which way is up. Because I thought, yeah, actually, you're just going to suffocate at this point. And I surfaced again. And my first thought was just, you are so lucky. To resurface and, and not really knowing or understanding the extent of, of what happened. And um, unfortunately, I did get caught in the propellers and it caught my lower back and, and my right leg. And we were lucky in that there was one of my friends with a lifeguard. He came out and he grabbed me. But there was definitely that moment. Um, I mean, I knew how bad it was, the risk of bleeding out. And, you know, we're in the middle of nowhere and, and I needed a blood transfusion. And just that realization actually this could be it. The good news is we made it to, um, we made it to the hospital and we, I ended up with one of the most brilliant surgeons in Canada who cut his vacation short to, to come and, and see to me. And he saved my life. They managed to find a way to patch up my back, which was an absolute, I mean, it was miraculous the way that the propeller, it was a very, very deep wound that for some reason just grazed the top of my spine, and then was very, very deep again on either side. And you just think, this is nuts. But what they couldn't do was save all of my leg, and they had to amputate my foot just above the ankle. And you've already you know, spoken about how much of an amazing role your parents played in your life. What, what was the first thing that, that they said to you when, when they got to the hospital and they realised what had happened to their, their daughter? It was actually my mum who was the one who came in to tell me the news. And it was, it was really confusing because I remember getting out of surgery and, and being told it was great, it went really well, like it was the best possible scenario. And then it was my mom came in and, and she was the one that had to say, you know, I'm so sorry. They did everything they could, but they were unable to save all of your leg and they had to amputate. That was just absolutely devastating. I remember just as best as I could turning over and just because I was just crying and all you think about is just life is never going to look the same again. And actually, I'm not sure right now I want that life or I want to know what it looks like. So you described yourself earlier as a chameleon, you know, your experiences of going into different schools and different countries. How did you reconcile yourself with being able to go into school and to do all the things that a 16 year old girl should do now that you've 
having to process the fact that you've had this amputation? It was one of the hardest things and one of the hardest like mind shifts I've ever had to do. And the truth was I was not in a good place afterwards. It was quite dark and it was ugly and I was angry and, you know, I was in pain and you are just railing against the reality of what it is, but, but you can't. I remember just thinking if I just, if I just sleep long enough, at some point I will wake up and realize this is just a really bad dream. And that's kind of what you're clinging on to. And that was, you know, the existence for those seven days. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't want to see anyone. I didn't want any visitors. I wasn't eating. Um, to be honest, there were parts of me that had just stopped caring. I did not want to be there. I did not want to be experiencing this. I was not excited about anything else that was to come. And I just wasn't a nice person. <laughs> I remember my mom was amazing. She literally slept on a a wooden chair for three weeks because she didn't ever want me to feel like I was alone in that. And she would just do everything she could to make me comfortable. I remember one day um, she she was bringing my toothbrush over to me. I remember yelling at her. I mean yelling at her because she brought me my toothpaste, my toothbrush with the toothpaste all in one big clump, not evenly spread oh, over the head. <laughs> and I just think, Stephanie, what were you thinking? And I yelled at her and, you know, she didn't even react. Um, I'm fairly certain now looking back, you know, she then stepped out of the room and cried because she knew that's that's not her daughter and she knew what I was going through. But that that's where I was and it was an ugly place. And I had an amazing moment seven days after the accident. And I sometimes think, my goodness, who would I be if this hadn't have happened? It was a Monday morning, seven days after the accident initially happened and a nurse Claudette walked into the room and she had breakfast. And I looked at her and I just said, you know, I don't, I don't feel like eating today. And kind of just closed my eyes, waiting for her to get the hint and just go away. Just leave me be. Please just let me be here and wallow. That is what I want to do today. You know, I kind of opened my eyes a little bit to see if she had gone. And instead, she was right there. And she looked me straight in the eye and said, very kindly, but very firmly, it's time. It is time to get up and do something. You know, others have done it. You can do it too. And that was actually quite shocking. Because for seven days, everybody had pretty much just felt sorry for me and let me get away with whatever I wanted. And she was the first person to walk into that room and actually expect something better than moping. She was not accepting the pity party. And initially, I mean, I was shocked. I thought, you know, I am sick and I am sad and I have earned this. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I have earned the right to sit here and feel miserable and have everyone else feel sorry for me. But she was also the first person who came in and challenged me. And that actually felt really good. I've always been someone who responded to a challenge. I loved, that's what I loved about sport. That's what I loved about competition. And she appealed to that. And that morning after she left, I ate my breakfast and I showered and something just shifted. And, you know, I didn't know what life was going to look like. I still wasn't terribly excited about it, but I just thought I, I am going to fight. No matter what life is going to look like, I will make the best of it. And that interaction changed the course of my life. Nurse Claudette. Nurse Claudette. I mean, we'll get on to talking about your career after this moment that you've decided to fight. But how often have you ever gone back to Nurse Claudette's mantra and reminded yourself of it? I think it's almost just, it's instinctual now. It's in there. That moment that, that you want to quit, it is just, well, actually... Just hang on, because something else could be around the corner. And if you quit now, you won't know. And even if something doesn't happen, and even if this really is just the end of the road, well, at least you know. I don't ever want to be left wondering. I mean, I love my life. Um, it looks nothing like I thought it was going to look like as a 15-year-old. And honestly, it's so much better. So many aspects of your life you cannot script. You, you have to kind of just show up and the opportunities come and you have to take them. And some people will, will look at that resume and think, oh, so what was your game plan? What did you do? And I'm like, honestly, there really wasn't a strategy other than I am just going to keep showing up, doing my best and see where it goes. Brilliant. That plays so nicely into, we've 
after over 150 of these conversations, we've defined high performance as do the best you can where you are with what you've got. And it sounds to me like you just decided in that moment to do the best you could where you were with, with what you had. What year was that accident? 2000. So we're 22 years on from that now. If you had your life all over again, sitting here today, would you have not gone on the boat that day? Or has it given you so much that you never thought you would have that you actually would not want to change the course that your life has taken? But so, I mean, I know the answer everyone expects is, oh no, I would change nothing. Um, but equal, I mean, like the reality is disability is really hard. You know, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Prosthetic legs are amazing and I love them. Um, but it does not compare to a real foot. And, and would I love to have life with two feet again? Yes, um, I would. But equally, I love who I am right now. And, and that's actually taken a long time to be able to say that. You know, I, I really like, I really love who I am. And the thing is, I would not be me without that really, really difficult period. It was hard. It is one of the hardest things I have ever done. But it's the hard things in life that make you. And I would not exchange that for anything. So tell us about those hard things, because I'm really intrigued about that immediate period afterwards because I think maybe today there's a bit more tolerance for differences but at 16 years of age going into school kindness tolerance understanding isn't necessarily at the forefront of young people's minds so what was it like when you first go back into school and because they've known you before the accident and now they're having to adjust to you coming in I was so fortunate in that I had so, so much support from school. I, I sometimes get parents uh, will often that will email me about bullying. And I'm just like, unfortunately, it just wasn't something right. that I ever experienced. Um, it was hard going back for me personally, because so much of my identity was wrapped up in being an athlete. And I remember my biggest fear going back and just thinking, honestly, like, I have nothing to offer anymore. I can't score tries. I can't score goals. Um, I'm tired all the time. I'm so slow moving around. Like I'm just going to be a drag and a drain on anyone. That was my biggest fear that I was going to get back there and just no one was going to like me. No one was going to want to hang out with me. Nobody was going to want to deal with all this extra baggage that I was now carrying. And it just could not have been further from the truth. After an amputation, you can't get fitted with a leg immediately because um, the skin has to heal. It's going to have to tolerate all sorts of different pressures. And so I remember it was a Friday morning. It was the day I was going to get my first leg. And I didn't really tell anyone because, you know, I'm, I'm apprehensive of it. And, you know, it's a new thing. And what if it doesn't go well? Like, I'm pinning a lot of hope on this being great and my life getting back to normal. And um, I got the leg. And because it was a Friday morning, I was walking into an assembly. And there were two entrances. Like, I got to either go in the front, which meant I had to walk by the stage. And everybody would see me. And I thought, no, I'm going to go around. I'm just going to go in the back, you know, take a little seat at the back and hopefully nobody sees me. And I got about, I don't know, two steps through the door before the people in the back row turned around. And it was the first time anyone had seen me with, with a leg again. And everybody just stood up and started clapping just oh, because. Oh, beautiful moment. And that was just the realization. I am not, and I will never be alone in this. Like their joy at seeing me match my own joy. And that was the moment I realized they had lived this entire thing with me. What a special bunch of kids. Let's talk then about your adaptive mindset because there will be people listening to this who are, are in a dark place, they're struggling, they haven't been through the trauma that you've been through, but I really want them to, to hear what you're saying and to understand how dark it was, how deep you were in that depression after your accident, but then you found the tools to come out of it. So what were those tools that other people can apply to their own lives when they're struggling? The first thing that comes to mind, yeah, is 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 Nurse Claudette. I think that as human being, I mean, she she was she must have been in her fifties or sixties. You know, this is a nurse. She's seen everything. Nurses are amazing, aren't they? And and she probably was the only person in my life that could have said that to me. It's not something that probably a family member or a close friend could have said. She had enough distance removed, enough wisdom to read this situation right and know that is what's going to light that spark in her. And this is not like it was a one and done thing. It is something that I've had to come back to in my life several times. Um, being a competitive athlete, things don't always go well. Uh, actually, they, they rarely go well. It was really funny. I was, I was 
at an event in Nepal a while ago, and, and bearing in mind there was a little bit of a, um, a language barrier, and I was introduced on stage by this lovely gentleman who said, Steph Reed, um, who is a great winner. And I walked down and I was laughing because I just thought, I mean, the truth is I've probably lost about 95% of the time in my career. A far more statistically accurate description is Steph Reed, a great non-winner slash loser slash eighth place finisher. Um, and so that is what you're dealing with constantly. And the only way that I've found to prevent getting into that mindset of there's nothing I can do to change the situation um, was, was just talking with people. I mean, some people will have sports like some people have different things. For me personally, um, someone in my career who I would meet with once a week and we would chat. And um, I'm trying to think how Brian would describe himself. He wasn't a sports psychologist. Um, he was more of a mentor. Actually, on his business card, it there's a picture of glasses at the bottom. And the whole point is I will help you to see things through a different lens. I was with Brian for a while. I think the powerful thing about meeting with Brian is that he was not part of my performance team and that he had absolutely no responsibility for my performance. He didn't work for British Athletics. He wasn't a coach in that sense. His only concern was me. How am I doing? And because there was never any thing in terms of conflict of his motives or her, his intent, um, I could be 100% honest and vulnerable and safe with him. Because the thing is, nobody can help you unless you give them the full picture. If you paint a false picture for them of what they're expecting, then the help that they're going to give you isn't going to be helpful. And um, yeah, I think that's been one of the most powerful things that I've learned is we all have blind spots. Um, that's just how we're wired. Be honest with the people around you and that way they can give you the best help that they can. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So let's talk about the mindset that you have, which allows you to be open to this kind of input. I mean, I've noticed that you have had a lot of coaches in your career. So is this an example of you constantly looking for answers from people? Yes, I think that's one of the best things about people. We, we meet millions of people and I think often um, maybe we don't take the time to, to engage with them or chat with them or find out or just have that sense of curiosity about them. I had an older sister. Uh, she's three years older than me. And you know, that was amazing. I had the benefit of somebody more advanced than me and I could learn so many things from her. And, and that was great. And I think I just kind of recognize that in the rest of life. Um, sometimes you see people doing things and there's things that you want to do and you always have two options. You can either feel jealousy or envy or you go over and you ask them, hey, I love what you're doing. How did you do it? And people are really shy about doing that, but you would be surprised how many people want to share that because it's their passion and it's something that they love doing. And part of it is you have to take the step and you have to go out and you have to ask the question. What about then 
deciding when that person has been really helpful and really wonderful, but you now need to get input from elsewhere. You've had a lot of coaches and this is something that I know I struggle with. You know, I have a relationship with someone. I can't possibly tell them that the relationship is over and that I need a, a new route. So what advice would you give us in this arena? That's a tough one because again, we always have that sense of, of um, you know, loyalty. And so I, I started my athletics career quite late um, by, by standards of track and field. Um, How I, old were you? So I was probably um, about 20. Um, the accident happened just as I was 16. And then there was probably about, um, you know, three to four year recovery period before I could really start getting back into, into sport. And, you know, 20 is, 20 is old <laughs> in that, in that. And so I, I kind of knew, you know, Stephanie, you don't have time to waste. You don't have the luxury of a 10 year junior career. And so I was very intentional about who I went after. And, you know, looking back now, people would have thought I was ridiculous from the stage of, you know, knowing nothing. I was seeking out a world-class coach. <laughs> and so, you know, by coincidence, uh, where we lived in Canada happened to be about 15 minutes from the high performance athletic center in Canada at that time. So I showed up to the track at the high performance hours. I mean, we're talking the Olympic level athletes training. <laughs> you know, I come in as a chubby, unfit girl with one foot, not quite understanding why, why aren't people excited to coach me? And so I kind of realized, okay, look, no one's going to walk over to you. What, what else can you do? So I just thought that's fine. I'm just going to keep showing up here. And, you know, I would watch their warm ups and I would just do them on the other side of the track. <laughs> and I thought that's fine. Like this is the best that I can do right now. And eventually, um, probably about two or three months in, one of them noticed and said, do you know what? You're actually, we're kind of impressed with your commitment and you have a reasonable amount of coordination. No idea what you're doing, but I'd love to coach you. I thought, great. And so that was kind of the start. Um, but I think I've always had a good internal sense of we've gotten to a point where I have learned everything that I can from you. And I'm so grateful for it. Um, and I think that is actually a normal part of every relationship. Um, you can learn everything that you can. And it's not the relationship ends. It just changes. People that I mentor, you know, the point is that at some point, this is going to end and we're going to become peers and friends. And you're going to go mentor someone. And that's just kind of the natural course. So I never had a problem, um, partly because I was very aware of the time constraint. But I just think that's just a normal evolution. Tell us some of the killer questions you use then when you meet somebody to be able to soak up as much knowledge and information that they're going to get so I love the openness of saying can you tell me what you're doing because I think it's great but once you get into that relationship for people listening to this what are the kind of great questions that you ask that accelerate the learning process do you know what I'm actually just realizing I I don't I don't ask the great questions and it's because the most things that I have learned from people it's literally because I have attached myself like a leech to them. And I will, I just want to spend time with them because you can ask questions like, yeah, about your career. But I think I'm actually more interested in things like, you know, if we really mundane, boring things, like I've invited myself to come and watch you speak at this event, which means I'm in my car with you all the time. How do you drive? When we go to the service station, oh, how do you treat people as we're in the service station? Really mundane things. But actually, those are the things I've found that set, set apart because it's one thing to be this way on stage or this way in your career and, and yet to be like this through all of your life. And so actually, I don't think I have a set of questions. It is just I'm around them all the time and I see them in every single facet of their life. And that's what I take away. So we recently interviewed um, a rugby player that gave us a great line. He said that how you do anything is how you do everything which is what you're describing. So tell us about some of the things that when you've been around the most impressive coaches, the ones that have had the greatest impacts on your life, tell us some of the things that you've observed that you think actually gives us a clue as to how they do anything is how they do everything. Okay, so um, I'm going to name this example because it's one that I think about quite a lot. Um, and it's uh, from Mike Sherrick, who currently is the CEO of Paralympics GB. Actually, no, he, he's just retired. He led us through an amazing COVID period. Um, but we actually met when he was head of sponsorship for BP for London 2012. So pretty much the most enviable role in sport in the country in that year. And watching how he went about his work. And one of the key things that he does is, is hospitality, which is such an incredible job. And just it is all about relationships and, and how you treat people. 
and we were actually at an event, absolutely nothing to do with work. This was a social event for both of us. And we were um, part of a, a 10 kilometer run, 10K run for Richard Whitehead, who was running marathons. Um, I think it was 42 and 40 days, but we were doing a 10 kilometer segment. And I remember it was just being with Mike and watching the contrast in our approaches to this event. I showed up for that 10K. The biggest thing on my mind is they had a bus that kind of followed you along. And, um, you know, I'm a sprinter. I don't do 10Ks. And all I'm thinking, I'm worried about myself, my performance. I do not want to be the slow person that ends up on that bus because that is going to be so embarrassing. So it literally showed up mostly thinking about myself. Mike shows up. And uh, yes, he's interested in his 10K. But as I'm running, you know, he is going up and down the pack that we had. And again, it's it's recreational runners. And he's checking in. How are you doing? Oh, you're doing great, Sharon. Keep going. Can I get you some water? And I was very aware of the contrast in our attitudes. Mine was very inward focused. He was looking at everyone else. And I that was just a great lesson for me. That is what getting to the top looks like. It's not stepping on top of people. He got there because he cared so deeply about everyone. And it was so natural for him even in his non-work life that is just who he was can you get to the top then whether it's in sport or whether it's in business without being selfish there is this feeling that this is the preserve of the selfish you know they've had to put themselves above everyone else to get there what do you think about that it almost starts with the definition of what the top is but i think you can it's a really interesting time in society when we are all so individualist uh, individualistic and and we think about ourselves and our most important thing and it's really interesting because I, I look back actually a part of the the education my parents gave me and it was so um because of just the way that their lives went um two things were really important to impress upon um, my mom for her two daughters and it was about self-reliance and making sure that you can take the initiative and you can depend on yourself almost to the point where I look at my life now and I think probably I was too used to working on my own. I was too used to looking out for myself. Um, I wasn't used to dealing with a team. And, and what I realize now is, is that for anyone, no matter how smart you are, you are still not as smart as you plus 10 other brains. That is how amazing and powerful things happen. And if it's just about you getting to the top, it's you on your own. And you will always fail against a team of people who can check their egos, you know, who aren't who aren't worried about, you know, having that fame label or that power label on them. And so, like I say, it's a question of what does getting to the top look like for you? And if you get to the top and you have no one to celebrate with, is that really gonna feel all that good? I don't think it will. Life is a team sport. It is. And again, it's something that took me a really long time to learn that even in, in the Olympics and Paralympics, there's no gold medal for doing it all by yourself. <laughs> there is a gold medal for the person who did it the best and, and the best does involve a team. Can we talk about um, self-doubt, fear, imposter syndrome? After what you've been through, it would be easy for people to listen to this conversation and think, well, there must be no fear or self-doubt. You've been to the lowest place and you've turned yourself into someone that's changed the game for others and broken down doors for others to walk through. So what, what role does self-doubt play in your life? Um, <laughs> I have self-doubt all the time, but I guess in some ways, I, I, just, I don't necessarily see it as a negative thing. If I've given an opportunity or someone asks me to do something and the first thing that I feel is fear and self-doubt, for me, that is a trigger. That is something you must do <laughs> or that is something you at least need to explore because I know that it's something that's going to stretch me. It's going to make me uncomfortable and, and that is a good thing. And, and the question is, yeah, how do you manage that self-doubt? And I guess in some ways it's almost just become a habit where it triggers this feeling of excitement in me because you think, oh, what is this going to be like? And I've also noticed two things about that. It is easier to deal with self-doubt in a realm that is new to you or that you don't have an emotional attachment for. So for example, if I'm dealing with self-doubt, um, well, I've recently retired, but in the world of athletics, that's much harder because you know, 18 years in that career, 
there is a level of expectation um, on me as an athlete to always be excellent, to be great. So it's scarier taking risks. But I found in other areas of my life where there isn't that expectation, I'm much more free. So for example, um, I was asked to act in a short film. I, I wasn't an actress. I'd never done this before, but there was, I remember showing up for the first day. I said, I will do it, but I will need acting lessons. And the director was awesome. He's like, yeah, no problem. Um, you can buy and, and we're going to do this. And I remember showing up for the first day and just, I knew I'm going to be terrible. Like, it's not going to be a surprise to anyone. It's not going to be a surprise to me. It's not going to be a surprise to, to Sam because everyone knows where I'm starting from. And so actually there's huge freedom to fail. There's zero expectation. And so we did this one exercise where, um, He's like, okay, I want you to pretend um, we were just in his big loft apartment. I want you to pretend that you need to get out on time and you're looking for your keys. And so I'm like, right, okay, look for keys. And, you know, I'm, I'm wandering around and uh, I pick up a pair of headphones and he's like, okay, stop. He's like, those headphones are tiny. You know, your keys are not underneath it. Like it was just a really dumb mistake. And, and we all kind of laughed, but I had that ability to laugh at myself. So it was fine. I don't always have that ability to laugh at myself in areas where I'm expected to be excellent. And so I think it's good to kind of explore both of them. And, and I'm trying to get better about um, the areas where parts of my identity are there. Because once you are excellent, if you want to keep being excellent, you have to keep trying new things. And you can almost get stuck in this prison of, I'm too scared to try something new. And yet if I don't, I'm not going to keep being excellent. And that is the harder situation to be in by far. See, I sometimes think when you talk about finding the thing that you're good at and then making sure you stay good at that, I almost think like you're defrauding yourself in that because I see loads of people who are doing the thing they did 20 years ago that worked for them then, right? So all they're doing is reliving the same day over and over again. And they're kind of like... You know, particularly people who are in the public realm, they think, well, I cashed in on this 20 years ago, so I'm going to keep on cashing in on the same thing. Not only are you cheating the people that are watching you do that, because it's like, well, you're doing the same act again, you know, for 20 years. But also I think more than that, you're cheating yourself. Like you're removing all of that growth because you're playing the safe game. And as soon as you don't play the safe game and you fail fantastic fantastic like i'd say to people all the time chase failure the only way you know if you're pushing yourself to your limits is if you fail and i love the fact that you've you've still got self-doubt and you've still got imposter syndrome and i used to really suffer with self-doubt and the way that i managed to kind of reframe it in my head right is that if i have fear or self-doubt about something then that is an indicator to me that i care about it if i don't want to achieve something i have no self-doubt or any worry about it but there I shouldn't be doing it because I, it doesn't bother me. It's a bit like jealousy or seeing what other people have got and feeling that little burn inside you. That is an indicator that you want what they've got. It's a message that you have to listen to. So as soon as someone offers you an opportunity and you go, wow, that is scary. It's scary because you want it. And if you want it, you have to go for it. And too many people stop at the point of the fear rather than realizing that it's not fear, it's desire. And you have to go and you have to get that. Yes. I think one of the things I've also learned is you have to stop. If you treat life as an adventure, then when the mishaps happen and, uh, you know, the different forks in the road come, that's okay. Whereas if you treat it as an exercise in perfection, it is a prison. And I remember... I had a little girl ask me once, she really wanted to do athletics, and she just said, but I just, I get so nervous before every race. You know, how do you get the butterflies to go away? And I looked and I just said, you know what, like 22 years in, they never go. But the thing is you make friends with them because actually the butterflies is your body getting ready to go. And I will never forget, I had this lesson in competing and I had the opportunity to go and compete just at this fun long jump me. And I thought, oh, how amazing will that be to be able to just go to this casual meet and be able to compete free from pressure and just do it for fun. And I got there, I just could not be bothered. Nothing about that meet excited me. It was the worst performance I had ever done. And my whole life, I've been telling myself, oh, if I could just compete without pressure. And I found out what that's like. It's awful. Like, give me the pressure. I actually love it. <laughs> it's exciting. So when you look back over your 17-year career then, I'm, I'm intrigued by this by this, this area of the conversation about um, competing in areas where there was a sense of expectation as opposed to the freedom that comes from knowing that you're the beginner's mindset when you do acting. Do you look back now and think you could have done even better in your career if you could have somehow removed this sense of expectation from you and embraced failure 
Yes and no. I think you can look back on any career. And yeah, in hindsight, you can say, actually, if I had just done these these things differently, but then it is just all part of that growth process. Yeah. And who I am now is different from who I was then. And I kind of feel, so if I look back on my career, you, you go, because of the stages of your career, you have different advantages at different points. And so I remember the beginning, you know, where I showed up, um, you know, for my first Paralympics and there was no expectation. And those kind of athletes are dangerous because they are wildly naive they're completely uninhibited. You have no idea what they're going to give. And that was me. And I ended up coming away with a surprise bronze medal. And then you kind of hit that midpoint of your career where not only do you have the benefit of, you know, you're stronger, you're faster, you're wiser, you have more experience, but also, okay, now there's more at stake. Um, you've got more expectation, you have more pressure, um, you've got sponsors, you've got funding, you have outside people expecting you to, to deliver. And what about internally? Oh, internally. Uh, I mean, I've always been my biggest motivator, my biggest critic. And and those voices get, again, it's it's almost like your identity is getting wrapped around it. And so you're becoming less free. You're becoming more trapped in this prison. You, you're feeling that pressure. I need to keep doing the same thing to get the same result. Yep. And, and that is a prison. And so I almost feel like I had this kind of like slump somewhere in the middle. And then you get to the point at the end of your career where you find a way to take all of that wisdom, all of that experience, combine it with that total freedom and naivety, and that's how you end it. And, and I think it's actually probably quite a good template. I don't think there, there is a way to possibly kind of change that arc and make it so every year is awesome. Um, there are just some things in life you learn as you go through. But I'm interested because you're a mentor to people now as well. So that like, whilst you can't go back and change it for yourself, I'm interested in, say, young athletes now that might be listening to this that go, how do I just accelerate my way through that difficult middle bit to get to competing with knowledge and experience, but also that freedom? What advice it's, And it's just give? as relevant in a non- Sports yes, sense, isn't it? You know, for life, really. I think yes, that, that's a really great question. So, what what I try and do, the people that I mentor, is just really encourage that sense and that love for adventure, and um, I want them to keep taking the risks that I probably was too too scared to, and and just if you develop that internal love and just know actually this could totally fail, that's okay. There will always be a way back. Like all of life does not rest on this one moment. Life is too big for that. And so, yeah, if I could really foster in them a love for adventure, a love for taking risks, being okay with failure, not complacent and and not okay with repeating the same failures over and over, but, you know, failing in a way that is magnificent and spectacular and epic. And that makes a great story. Failing forwards. Yes. <laughs> but then that takes us into the identity model that you've spoken about. You said at one stage, you almost like your identity got caught up in being the athlete, you know, like you'd had almost a bit of an identity death when the accident happened because you'd been the, the young sporting prodigy. You were going to go and play for Canada in rugby. And then you had to reinvent yourself and then you've found your way back to sport. Talk to us now then about this interesting period you're in of retiring. You're a former athlete now. How have you coped and reframed your identity around this period of your life? It's been hard. And I mean, I'm, I'm really lucky in my retirement in that and that I, I chose it. I wasn't injured. I was still funded. Um, I just knew this period is just done and I'm okay with that. And still, there was quite a deep, dark dip for a period. What about? It just felt like I didn't have a center. Everything had just been ripped away and you're floating. There was nothing tying you down. And it was actually quite scary. Uh, and I was really lucky in that I had some really great help and really great people to chat with. But it was just, it was just the most bizarre thing. You know, there was just one moment where you can feel something like quite dark bubbling up and you know, people always say, let it out, let it out. But I knew, no, if this comes out right now, like I actually feel like my mind and myself is going to fracture. And so I called people, I got some help and I tend to feel things quite deeply. So it's great. You kind of go through the cycle quite quickly, you know, felt everything and got it out of my system, but it was a hard three weeks. I mean, and I had to really gauge who I was hanging around with because for no reason, you know, you just burst into tears and, um, you know, you need to be with someone that, that's quite a safe place to do that. Uh, and again, it was just that, you know, you think you're doing better about the identity thing, but these things will always rear their heads. And it's not a one and done thing. It's something you have to keep going. But 
basically what I've learned in the process and what I've been learning the past 22 years and, you know, had a great reminder recently was identity. It's a necessary thing. We need to have one. It's your center. It's who you are. But you have to be really careful as to what you hang that on. It doesn't work to hang it on. I'm Steph the athlete. I'm, you know, Steph the able-bodied person because those are all things that can change. And so I think it's about picking things like, okay, I am Steph that will always try her best. I am the staff that will commit 100%. I am the staff that will reinvent and come back. Those are things that no matter what else is going on, they can always be me. And um, even when the accident initially happened and, and sport was no longer an option for me, and I was thinking, but I'm still the same person. Like I am still someone who loves to work hard and is competitive and loves competing. So what's that now going to look like? And in that moment, it was. Um, I joined the trivia team and, you know, you kind of, there, there's four of you and you go to different schools and you compete and, you know, it's not quite the same as, as being on a rugby pitch, but you know, that was just a different outlet. There will always be an outlet to express those inner things, that true identity, even if it's not how you originally imagined it. So what advice would you give to listeners then? Because what you're describing there is identifying your core values, their values that are going to be eternal they're controllable and they're replicable in your life. Whatever you do, you can still try your best. You can still come back. You can still be kind and all those other things. So how would you advise people listening to this to go and explore what their own values are so they can understand that in any context, they can still be congruent and out with integrity? Well, I mean, there's several different ways that you you can do it. And I think you also have to be really careful. We, we kind of all have... You ask them what their values are and and they'll you know they'll they'll say what they are. And often it's an aspirational list of values. And I think you have to be really honest with yourself. Actually, what are my values? That's your starting point. And it doesn't mean that your values for all time, you know, you can change and work towards them, but you gotta be honest where your starting point is at. And for me, the starting point is always have a look at where you spend your time and your money. That will be where your values are right now. And then you have to think about, do I want to shift this? Not because someone else thinks I should or not because, you know, it looks good, but do I want to shift this? Uh, And a good way to start thinking about that is if someone stood up at your funeral, what is it that you would want them to say about you? Oh, nice. That tends to, I I didn't make that up. That was, um, (laughs) (laughs) Um, that was a question asked by, by one of the sports psychs. And, and, you know, it sounds quite morbid, but actually I don't think it is. I think, the reality is, is that we all have a time limit. You know, we're all going to pass away. And it's funny, every single world championships, every single Paralympics, you'll be three weeks out. And the thing you think is, oh, if I just had more time to work on this, but you don't have more time. And that's a good thing because that is what that gives that specific period value. It is time limited. And that's what gives your life value. Again, it is time limited. So you can start with that point of um, what do I want people to say at my, my funeral? And something that I also think is really helpful, sometimes people almost want to check out of this process because, or or out of having these different aspirations because they don't think that they're talented enough or they don't think that they, um, what they're doing is, is a big enough deal. And, um, I was reminded of this line recently. Um, I'm still skating and I was watching, um, Kristen Spores and her new program and it's kind of like ninja samurai-esque and there is this killer line in it where it says, not everyone can fight like a samurai but we can all die like one. And I think, yes, we can all commit to this process and do the best that we can. And so nobody gets to check out of it. And what would you want them to say at your funeral? I would want people to say that I was someone who committed 100% to everything that she did and that with everything, I acted with love and with kindness. And did she enjoy it? Oh gosh, yes. <laughs> I hope I hope that they say, yeah, it was full of fun and it was 100% joyful. Brilliant. We've reached the point in our interview where we're going to run through some quickfire questions. Okay. And this leads on nicely to what we just spoke to. What are the three non-negotiables that you and the people around you need to buy into? Uh, number one, total commitment. Great. Um, two... Say respect. Uh, there was always time and there was always energy to treat everyone with kindness and, and dignity. And the third one is integrity. I never want to find myself doing something I would be embarrassed if other people found out about. How you go about doing things matters. What's your biggest weakness and your greatest strength? 
And you know, I often find they're one and the same thing. Um, often your greatest strength is, is, has a shadow side as well. And it's really funny. My husband and I go back and forth on this. Um, I know that there's quite a push at the moment towards this idea of being, um, you know, really temperate. Um, never let your highs too high and your lows too low. The truth is I am wildly emotional and I feel things really deeply and I enjoy it. I love the highs and I accept that feeling those highs and those joys will come with feeling the lows as well. But that's just me. Um, whereas my husband is, you know, he is the opposite. He is very, very even keeled, very middle ground. And it's so interesting being married to someone so wildly different from you because you can see that actually two different ways to do life, they both work. Very nice. The hidden 1% makes such a difference to our success. Could you tell us how you found the hidden 1% in your life? I think that hidden 1% has always come as a willingness to do something extra. Um, okay, so what is everyone else doing? Um, what can I do on top of that? Because if you keep doing what everyone else is doing, then you're going to get what everyone else is, is going to get. I mean, that's just age-old advice. Find something unique to do that no one else is doing it. Don't stop with the obvious. Love it. You know, Mark Webber, the former Formula One driver, said to us, average is easy. That's why it's popular. Yeah. <laughs> What book, podcast, or learning resource would you advise our listeners to go and explore? Oh, actually, I have two. Um, so the book would be John Ortberg, and it's called uh, At the End of the Game, It All Goes Back in the Box. And it's just, it's a really brilliant book about how, you know, you see various things on social media about, you know, if you work out and you drink water and you eat really well, you're still going to die. <laughs> and it's actually kind of his point as well. No matter how successful you are, um, at the end of the day, it all goes back in the box. And so how are you living in such a way that makes sure you are, you know, enjoying and making the most of that time, knowing it's all going to end? And then in terms of film, um, I'm going to go really left field here. Cool Runnings. Have you seen it? Great yes. film. <laughs> so for me, that is just one of the best examples of... Um, there's only ever going to be one winner. It does not mean there's only going to be one high performer. And that entire movie is about how to be a high performer. That is a lovely line. There's only going to be one winner. It doesn't mean there's only one high performer. I'm nicking that stuff. Yeah. You can go for it. <laughs> <laughs> and the final question, and this is your kind of last message really to the listeners of this podcast, um, and it's been brilliant, by the way. Your kind of one final golden rule, a thought you'd like to leave them with for living their own version of high performance. Be uncomfortable. And what I mean by that is say yes. Say yes to everything. Take the gamble. Bet on yourself. Try something new. Just go for it. If you get to the end of a week and you cannot name a single situation which you were really uncomfortable in, then you need to question what you're doing. Steph, what an amazing journey um, and what a brilliant conversation and a, a story that is far from reaching the end of its conclusion, I suspect. Thank you so much for sharing such incredible wisdom with our audience. Damien. Jake. Fascinating. Amazing. What stands out for you? Did I you cry at one point? I choked up, definitely. Yeah. I think just imagining being 16 years of age and having your mum come in and tell you that that accident that you remember really clearly has resulted in a life-changing um, amputation like that just really choked me up. And I, I, I think part of it was knowing where she eventually got to, but realising the dark place that she'd started from really sort of humbled me. I hope that people listening to this who are in a tricky place at the moment realise that she got to where she got to despite also being in a place that they might recognise at the moment. But I also hope that people noted down the genuine, tangible takeaways, tips, tricks, mindsets, shortcuts that Steph came armed with. Because I think we often think that high performance is a trickier thing to reach than it actually is. And when someone like Steph sits here and tells you the mindset that's taken her from, you know, suffering a disability at 16 to all of the amazing things that she's done since, you have to reflect on it and react to it. Yeah, definitely. I was reminded, I, I, I thought there was a real echo there for, in terms of you when, you know, when she spoke about the diary in the wallet test, because mm. I've said it to you before that I think people can talk a good game on my family, the most important thing. But when 
I speak to you and you're driving back in the early hours of the morning to get back to the family. You're not telling me your family's the most important thing. You're showing me and the kids know it and and Harriet knows it. And I think listening uh, to Steph there, the diary in the wallet test, she passes that every time in terms of when she commits to do something, she's brilliant at it. You know, well, she gives it all, she embraces it. Even I was talking to her before about the dancing on ice that she did and, you know, what seems like a bit of a light for off entertainment show. She never treated it like that. She went in there committed to making a fool of herself, falling on her face to eventually get to a place where she now skates for pleasure because mm. she's mastered the craft of it. I think there's something really powerful about where you spend your time and where you spend your money. Really good. Thanks a lot, mate. Thanks, mate. Loved it. And don't forget, if you want to hear what was said when the microphones carried on rolling, we have a subscription service, High Performance Plus, our premium service, brings you even more from our high-performance guests. Well, a big thanks for you listening to today's high-performance podcast. Of course, big thanks to the whole team who've worked to produce this content for you. And I also want to say thank you to everyone who's picked up a ticket for the high-performance live tour. We've created a brand new, never-seen-before theatre show. We start touring very soon, so we can't wait to meet all of you um, and be in the presence of the high-performance community. But I think the biggest thanks for this conversation has to go to Steph Reed for coming on here and sharing so much with us. And I know that for so many of you that listen to this podcast it's going to be incredibly helpful um you can also watch this episode by heading to our youtube channel and to find out more about everything from high performance just go to the high performance podcast.com that's the high performance podcast.com and you can find out all of the things that we're up to but for now have a brilliant week thanks for listening and we'll see you soon Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.